This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 23rd, 2020, and this is episode 173. I'm Scott Lennebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to kick off in a slightly different format and try it out, let us know what you think, with the BC Poly recap. Then we'll jump into changes on the assisted dying legislation that are coming through. The new NAFTA is almost here. And then we'll do a shortish segment on trying to keep up with the Conservative leadership race, which changes by the day. So by the time you listen to this, three more people will be in and two more will be out, I'm sure. First, though, let's thank those who helped make the show possible. We're still at 83 contributors every month, same as last week, but that's because we gained one and lost one. So thanks to Jack for pledging, and I hope to see more new faces in the coming weeks. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to that new URL, politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. And as a reminder, we're going to be at Fan Expo's Vancouver's Podcast Alley. The date will be Saturday, February 15th at 5.15 p.m. I just checked the schedule. We're on just before LeVar Burton. We'll be on the podcast stage. He'll be on the main stage. But that means you can come for our show and then stay to see Reading Rainbow Jordy LaForge, which seems like a win for everyone. Still finalizing what exactly we're going to do. Hopefully talk about politics and pop culture, which seems relevant. So let's jump into a BC Roundup. I think it'd be valuable to our listeners to start episodes this way, just for those who want to listen to the BC Politics podcast and get BC Politics right off the top, we'll try this out. Think of it as quick takes, but at the start, just for BC. We'll still have quick takes at the end. First up, the quickest of takes is this quote-unquote shuffle that happened this week. It is technically a shuffle in that cabinet ministers did get reassigned and a vacancy that was around for quite a while, actually, when I think about it. This is uh, Ginny Sims, former Ministry of Citizen Services. She was... She took a leave from the role. Yeah, she, she's basically pending. out of the role while there's an investigation going on. Which we don't know anything more about other than it's a special prosecutor. So Citizen Services had been managed by Selena Robinson, who's also looking at housing and municipal affairs and a lot of other things. And so Anne Kang, my MLA and Burnaby Deer Lake, becomes the new Minister of Citizen Services. Meanwhile, the the shuffling is literally like, is just two people. Michelle Mungle takes Bruce Ralston's old job as the Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Competitiveness. There's a slight name change to that ministry. It's the Jobs Ministry. And Bruce Ralston takes Mungle's job of Minister of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources. And that was it. That was the news. I think kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, people talked about a lot of other names, like maybe giving Bowen Ma or Ravi Cologne bigger prominence in cabinet, but... Well, Bowen up from the parliamentary secretary. Yeah, because Anne Kang moved from a parliamentary secretary role to a full minister. And the question is, would some of the other well-performing parlsecs or backbenchers move up? And I guess the answer was no. Things are kind of a stay the course. 
Everything is fine. Yeah, it was so anticlimactic that pretty much everyone moved on within, I think, like six hours of the shuffle to talking about the Nets thing. Yeah, there have been calls for, I mean, there's always calls for ministers to resign or change or shift portfolios. Teachers aren't happy with Rob Fleming. I mean, teachers aren't happy with this government in general or any government. You say the same thing about the liberals who were had actually right up before this were starting to put together a list of like their top ministers they want to see out. They of course came out with a well, we're not happy about this shuffle either because you know it doesn't get to the real heart of the problem, which the way they phrased it was more just a general problem with the government as a whole and nothing that a cabinet shuffle would actually fix. Like the jobs and energy ministries have been targeted by the liberals because of the labor disputes in the forestry industry, as well as the challenges of getting LNG and other projects going. Notably in the press release for this, they talk about what Bruce Ralston's going to be responsible for in energy, and they talk a lot about clean BC and BC Hydro and making it clean, but they don't talk about the petroleum resources that's right in his title or the mines, which are a little less clean most of the time. Well, the government clearly wants to uh, emphasize its environmental credentials, not its getting petroleum projects built credentials. So it seems like the government's pretty happy with the way it's going, and it will continue to go that way. Next, I wanted to touch back in on the Wet'suwet'en protests and the challenge against the coastal gas link pipeline. There's not a ton of new news. The biggest thing this past week have been the number of protests that have spread outside of the uh, Indigenous territory in the north to Victoria and elsewhere. And at the same time, John Horgan did a trip to the north to visit some local communities, but he was too busy, I guess, to meet with the hereditary chiefs, though he did offer them a phone call or to have Scott Fraser, the Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation Minister, drop by. And that seemed not good enough for the hereditary chiefs who wanted a face-to-face with the premier and nothing less. Which, I mean, when you... They, they have no disadvantage of taking a strong, firm line at this point. They have a solid amount of solidarity in leftist movements in Vancouver and Victoria and environmental movements. So why should they compromise? Yeah, the uh, premier space, I think, is, is more likely to be offside with them or offside with him on this than uh, the opposition parties. So yeah, that was phrased really awkwardly. The, 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 yeah, the premier's base is, I think, more likely to be against the premier's take on this, or at least the premier taking a step back than on his side. So it made sense for them to stick to their guns, so to speak. But for the Green Party, the politics are a little less difficult because they don't have to make difficult decisions. So Adam Olson the interim leader, was up there and visiting the hereditary chiefs. And this led to the former mayor of, I think it's the township of Sydney? It's the town of Sydney. Town of Sydney, uh, calling for his resignation. This is Stephen Price. The, his argument goes basically as follows. Adam Olson's visit to the region inflamed the protesters who ended up blockading Swartz Bay Ferry Terminal for a day. And like- that's... Five hours in the morning or yeah, something like that. For a little but he's bit. gone by noon. And therefore, he has like grossly undermined the rule of law and damaged the economy of BC and he needs to get out of his job. Like I'm all for calling for politicians to resign when they screw up, even from a position where I don't agree. 
but this field felt a bit strong. Yeah, just for meeting with people. We weren't even the ones doing the protest. It would have been fine if we met with people doing the protest anyway. Even better is how at Mayor Price on Twitter is the former mayor because he was elected in 2015, but he lost his attempt at re-election in 2018 by a vote of 3,740 to 929. If you do that math, that's about 80% of the people voted for the other guy. So not the most popular politician in Sydney. And I imagine slamming the federal Greens in a green-friendly area also the won't endear him. The green-friendliest area? Like, this is... I mean, Sydney is Elizabeth May's uh, riding. It's well, Adam Olson's riding. Like, it, it's fairly green-friendly territory. Yeah, it's silly. Also, it's kind of funny being, like, the mayor of a town of a few thousand people and using at mayor so-and-so. It's 11,000. It, it's... Okay, it's... Respectable. I, I grew up there, so I, I have to defend Sydney's okay, honor a Okay, okay, fair enough. But if you were mayor of Sydney, would you put at Mayor Scott in, as your Twitter profile? Probably not. There you go. Especially if it was only one-term thing. Yeah. I feel like... It's still a little weird that Gregor Robertson's using it after he's been out of office for more than a year, but, like, he had, like, nearly a, around a decade in office and, like, fair enough. And his city has 650,000 people. Yeah. It's still a little weird, but, like, yeah, when it's a one term and you get booted out rather unceremoniously, you should change the Twitter handle. A couple other stories on the Wet'suwet'en. The First Nations LNG Alliance came out with a letter this week slamming both the UN Human Rights Committee that we talked about a couple weeks ago and the BC Human Rights Commissioner, both of whom who've sided with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. And this alliance is basically raising the point that a lot of Indigenous nations support the pipeline and ignoring us is also throwing reconciliation under the bus in kind of a no-one-can-win situation. And where I think this gets explored very well are in a couple resources I'll throw in the show notes. First off, APTN had a Nation to Nation episode where first they interview Perry Belgard, who's the head of the AFN. And that part, I didn't find that helpful. But the second half of that episode, they talked to one of their reporters who's been up in the Wet'suwet'en territory, talking to both the hereditary chiefs, the elected council, and just people who live in the community and getting a sense. And notes a number of complicated messes in there, one of which is three hereditary chiefs who are women who supported the pipeline were actually stripped of their title in unclear circumstances, and they don't want to speculate beyond that, but it seemed questionable. That's not to say it's, you know, against their rules, but... Yeah, it's, it's it complicated, <laughs> and I, I think it's fairly easy, especially here in, like, coastal, or, you know, coastal urban BC to often hear the narrative that it's the gas companies versus uh, the First Nations when it's often a lot more complicated than that. And uh, you have Indigenous people on both sides of this who have different interests, some want the economic development, some uh, place a greater emphasis on protecting their uh, Indigenous territory and how that shapes out and all those complications. Often you don't really get a good sense of that at least here in Vancouver, I find a lot of the coverage. And that's where I like APTN's voice, because they're also reputable on this. They're not going to kind of play a, its complicated narrative just to side with one 
you know, development over anything. You know, their voice voices are indigenous. One of the other valuable resources I found is I did go through the actual interlocutory injunction ruling in this past week, which I honestly should have read earlier. And then I also read West Coast Environmental Law's response to it. And those two, I think, paint an interesting picture of both the judge finding sort of the complications and the tensions within the community and going, I don't know how to resolve this. And then the lawyers pointing out from WCEL that this decision plays a little loose in some ways. And it's, you know, it's a good critique of it, I thought. That's not to say I think it's 100%, I know that it's 100% correct, correct, but there's just lots more that can be read about this. And I'm still figuring out where to land. I mean, maybe we just don't do LNG because we're in a climate emergency, but that's not on the table. Well, and another emergency that sort of continues to grip the province is the affordable housing challenge and how do we solve that there's a new or the province had launched an expert panel on the future of housing supply and affordability and they have launched a consultation that seeks to answer two questions what are some of the things that could be done by government or others to increase housing supply in your community i know you have thoughts on that scott i have a lot of thoughts on that (laughs) and then what are three key things that could be done to make housing more affordable in your region or community so two simplish questions with big, complicated answers. And if you're the kind of person with lots to say on it, go take the link in the show notes. Yeah, you can let them know that you want to see them take a more active role in preventing municipalities from having exclusionary policies that keep out new rental homes, uh, new social housing units. And you've seen a lot of those tensions boil over uh, in a bunch of municipalities like uh, Maple Ridge, I believe it was. So uh, if you liked what the government's doing, want you to see them do more, take a cue from places like California or um, Oregon that are putting uh, forward state-level legislation on this, you know, let them know. Or if you have other ideas. One place where there won't be a lot of homes being built is the Jumbo Resort Municipality, where this lawn-proposed ski resort finally has been... uh, closed off it's not going to happen the jumbo glacier has decided they will no longer be pursuing this they've reached a buyout agreement with uh the province the nature conservatory and uh, the local first nations and this ski resort that's been apparently in the works since 91 won't be happening it was always a ridiculously ambitious plan like they wanted to use the glacier to do a year-round ski resort and it's very remote like, when you look at it on a map, it's not right off the highway. It's quite a ways out in the, I believe it's in, the, like, the East Kootenays or West Kootenays. So it was a big plan. It was going to be expensive. It was going to be billions of dollars to construct this. And the company behind it, like you said, has fought for years. And this effort famously went to the Supreme Court of Canada when the Tunaha Nation argued unsuccessfully in the end that, well, this mountain isn't technically within their traditional territory. It's close enough, and they believe the Great Bear Spirit lives there, and that if the ski resort is built, it will chase the bear away and destroy their religious freedom, or be an assault on that. And the Supreme Court, in a very weird split decision, disagreed with them. Didn't let them you know, have their rights protected on that question. But ultimately, it's going to be a protected area, 
So they ended up winning despite losing the battle. And the province is now taking steps to dissolve the municipality, a, a municipality that, as far as I know, had no residents, but did have a mayor and councillors. Yeah, they were appointed by the province. You know, smallest municipality by population in BC of zero, the remote resort municipality of Jumbo Glacier. It was created, I believe, by the Christie Clark government as a way to help represent, because it was like a first step toward this community being established, just like there's a resort municipality of Sun Peaks. Whistler's also one. Yeah, but, I think you, yeah. but people actually live in Whistler. Yeah. Maybe some people live in Sun Peaks. but Like resort municipality, I think, have their own special yeah. rules associated with them. So there had been this structure set up, but now they need to disestablish it because there's never going to be a town there or community there. And as far as I can tell, I think Justin McElroy did some reporting on this for CBC no one actually knows what to exactly how to do it because we haven't unincorporated a municipality in like a hundred years in this province. The community charter is actually weird because what type of municipality you are, except for resort municipality, like whether you're a town, village, village town, city, etc., is decided by your popu- either your population when you incorporate, or if you get big enough, you can apply for the next status up. Yeah, like uh, I think about. Two years ago now, Delta moved from the corporation of Delta to the city of Delta. But what happens is no one ever goes down a tier. So I think Kimberly is a city technically, even though they only have 6,000 people. And there's a lot of weird situations like that across the province. Municipal facts are fun. Listen to the Campy Report. But while we're talking about municipalities, one thing that you will be able to use to get around many municipalities, at least in the lower mainland, is Uber and Lyft as the Passenger Transportation Board ruled today that they will both be allowed. So, ride hailing's here. We can hopefully all finally stop talking about that. This has been one of the most tedious BC politics discussions in a while, I found, is the when will Uber and Lyft get here? Yeah, I love the BC Liberal talking points about, like, ride-hailing is super delayed by this government. Also, traffic is out of control in Metro Vancouver. Well, the, the Dreams of House have been pushing for ride-hailing too, so it's not just the Liberals. But you can't complain about both of those things, because now we're going to get ride-hailing and traffic will get worse. Slightly worse. It gets worse wherever they go. Yeah. On the other hand, it's going to be a big hit to the take pictures of the tra- uh, taxi stand at YVR industry that's been roaring in the past couple of years. So I think the more interesting part of this story is that the board actually also turned down two other applications. One was by a company called ReRide that neither of us had heard of and was looking to go in most of the regions in the province except the lower mainland and I believe the north. But more interestingly, Cater Technologies was turned down on their application to operate ride hailing everywhere. And Cater, most notably, was the like creation of the taxi industry, as far as I know, to run as a like hybrid taxi ride hailing system. Yeah, there's be like you seen cater cars around town here for and they, like six months a year now or something. Yeah, they've got a fleet that just parks at Metro Town. I've seen them there a ton. I yeah, I've seen a bunch like sitting near VCC Clark. And they promise to do a bunch of things that are at least better on paper than Uber and Lyft, like they would provide the car, cover the insurance, give everyone a $25 an hour wage, which all sounded great. But when the passenger transportation board reviewed their application, they went, your business plan seems 
unrealistic was the word they used with things like ridership projections expected to go up three and a half times in the first month and then double in the next three months. They apparently didn't factor in the possibility there would be other competition in the market. That seems like a important thing to consider, especially with a you know company that people may or may not have heard of called Uber looking to get in. And I think they're numbers for insurance were too low given the number of hours they wanted to be driving and just their application kind of fell apart on this on the business plan yeah on the business plan which seems like a somewhat odd thing for the passenger transportation board to be really concerned about i mean if cater doesn't make money isn't that kind of the cater shareholders problem rather than the government's we tried to look up exactly what their role is before the show and we couldn't find it quickly. You know, I can imagine that they're responsible for making sure that the services that come to BC aren't just flashing a pans that disappear and then suddenly leave people stranded in yeah, ways. I, like, I, I can see it if it's something like, you know, you are laying out, you know, specialized pickup spots and you're actually reconfiguring physical infrastructure. There's costs that aren't necessarily going to be just entirely on the company but yeah companies come and go it it just doesn't seem to be the most important criteria here and one of the ride hailing companies last two months so be it it also kind of makes you wonder about how much innovation there will be in this market if the only companies that can really get in are the very well-established international brands like if cater or the golden child of BC's ride hailing can't make it in BC, like even get the chance to try to make it, you know, are we dooming our own industry? Not that anyone I think expected them to be great, but yeah, if they don't even get to try mm -hmm. under market logic. Yeah. It seems like you want to be able to have some experimentation. That was one of the things that a lot of people liked about ride hailing. Was it, was it something new? You got to see a way to potentially change things up on how, rides were handled, an alternative to the taxi industry that a lot of people really hate. And yeah, the new system's more flexible than the old one, but maybe we haven't struck the right balance there. Well, there'll be 23 more applications to be ruled upon by the Passenger Transportation Board, so perhaps one of those will be the new innovative alternative. The last thing I'll say is it's kind of not shocking that this board is seemingly a little anti-innovation given when you visit their website it feels like a you know throwback in time from the logo to the fact all the press releases and decisions are all in pdfs not, not just that their, their faq was in a pdf <laughs> it's a bad web like there's no link direct link to a page a landing page for the press release it's just on the home page at the top which means I, i'll link in the pdf I'll link the PDF in the show notes, but it's a bad website. And the government of BC has some decent websites. Mm -hmm. So I don't get how they did this one so bad. Like, they're not great, but they're not embarrassing. That's <laughs> probably, like, done internally by the transportation board staff or something. I mean, maybe they didn't code it themselves, but they were responsible for the project management of the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, I'm seeing right now that uh, Richard Zussman's reporting on that... Uh, as of 11 a.m. tomorrow, Uber's going to be operating in Vancouver, so probably by the time you're listening to this, you can catch an Uber while listening to the podcast. 
that's going to close off our BC politics wrap-up, so let's move on to segment one, Made to Order. This is an acronym pun that works a lot better if you actually see it. It's I, spe- I spend a lot of time working on this file, so I just like hear it as made in my mind. Medical assistance in dying, M-A-I-D. I try. So the federal government is looking at reviewing and updating the medical assistance in dying laws. This was actually announced during the election and didn't get a ton of coverage. But essentially, there was a Quebec Supreme Court ruling last year that the reasonably foreseeable clause in Bill C-14 was unconstitutional, which is what a lot of people, including the now Justice Minister, David Lametti and a few others within the Liberal Caucus, told the government. Now, there might be some room that the government could have appealed that, but they announced during the election that they would instead just change the law. And now they are consulting on this. So they're really looking at two things in a new survey, which is first about this, all right, we're going to get rid of the reasonably foreseeable clause. Do you support that? Yes or no? I don't even know why they're asking it when they're going to do it. But then once we repeal it... They're probably asking it so they can, if they when they do repeal it, they can say, you know, Canadians support this rather than the, oh, we were forced to by the courts or basically trying to fight it out against them that's politically unpopular. And then they go on from there to look at possible safeguards around expanded access. So they say, you know, do you think the current safeguards are sufficient? And if we expand it, what extra safeguards should we put in place? And they go through a lot of different examples, which, you know, for my work with the BC Human Association, where we've taken a very pro-access position, they all seem kind of redundant, unnecessary, and potentially unconstitutional. And then the BC Civil Liberties Association has come out and basically said the same. So you have things like, should doctors have to talk to family members of a patient requesting an assisted death before they are allowed to access it? Should there be additional mandatory psychological exams, uh, things doctors don't want because they already have professional obligations and have developed a system, and things patient groups, advocates don't want because additional barriers means more difficulty getting access. And potentially, we can get into a survey in a minute, even Canadians writ large don't really want. And so it's just kind of frustrating that the whole survey is all framed in terms of how important are each of these additional safeguards to you. And it's very tilted in that direction from, it's not very important at all to me that you block access to, yes, I really want it blocked. I mean, I'm biased on this question, but it was a tilted survey in that regard. On the second half of the survey, they look at advance requests, something that a lot of people have asked for and have talked about, but the government, I think, has been hesitant because the logistics of doing this become difficult. So this is the idea that right now, if you want an assisted death, you have to be on your deathbed or you have to be able to get it and or ask for it and get it essentially in the same period. You can't say, if I get to this point, you can provide it. That becomes important, though, if for people with Alzheimer's or degenerative illnesses who know that their quality of life is going to go down, that they're eventually going to die or just become worse off. But eventually, they'll be 
not mentally competent. So their brain won't be there in the way that they'd be able to give an informed consent, which is necessary for this. So the question is, how do we enable these people to ask for this in advance? Whether it's, you know, I know next week I probably won't be competent, so let me fill out a form now. We can go through all the processes and then we can have that. Versus, you know, I've just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. When I hit this stage, I don't want to deal with it. Because these are things families have to deal with once someone becomes no longer competent. So the questions are both around that. And, you know, I answer a strong yes to both of those and write the reasoning why. It'll be interesting. I don't think the government's planning to introduce legislation on advance requests right away, since I think it will take a little bit of extra crafting to figure out the exact process for that. But it is promising, I think, that they are looking at this. Did now, the uh, Quebec court give a deadline on this? So the Quebec court ruling was on the reasonably foreseeable clause, and that was suspended until March 11th. So that's why I think there's going to be a bill as soon as Parliament's back to repeal reasonably foreseeable and possibly add additional safeguard barriers based on this survey and expert consultations that the government is doing right now. And then there'll probably be a follow-up later in the same term or, you know, in the fall or even next year on advance requests. Now, this all leaves out a couple other categories of people that are still hoping for access, people with mental illnesses who, you know, just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you can't give a competent uh, informed consent. It might just be only at certain times, but there's ways to work around that. Uh, mature minors, which I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable, the idea of a 17-year-old or 16-year-old requesting it. I think kind of both of those, yeah. A lot of people would feel uncomfortable with that. But the reality is in BC, we are very like ahead on mature minors. And it varies by medical intervention. But as soon as you are able to understand the intervention, you teenager or younger in some cases for some simple interventions are able to make choices. Vaccines for high school students is a perfect example. The HPV vaccine was a big controversy where teenagers wanted it, but in some Catholic schools, they were sending home notes to parents being like, you have to give permission. It's like, that's not how it works here. And the Supreme Court was pretty clear on previous cases that mature minors do have rights. Now, whether those will ever politically be opened up is still up for debate. Politically, I don't think the liberals will have difficulty passing something unless they do what they did under Jody Wilson-Raybould's attorney general, which is like, arbitrarily oh, slip in a... Sorry. We, we had a whole year of learning yes. the two roles here, so let's... Okay. Minister of Justice, where you kind of slip in this reasonably foreseeable clause that everyone goes, what does that mean? And then the courts eventually have to say, it doesn't mean anything. It's bad. It's not helpful. So the NDP supports expanding access. The Greens do as well. And I believe the Bloc does as well. So that's enough votes. Oh, any couple one of times well, over. except for the Greens. Any one of those yeah. would be enough. And you might even be able to find some conservatives who are in support. So, so far, the response to the survey has been unprecedentedly large, about 229,000 responses so far, which I believe puts it the largest government of Canada one and even beats out the retrobreaking daylight savings time one, which it was 223,000. I mean, that was just BC. That was like a tenth of the people. Yeah, so like... BC's winning on the ratio there, but in terms of absolute numbers, this one's the largest. And it's hard to tell, you know, how's that skewing? Uh, yeah, I, I could see a lot of uh, 
social conservative organizations kind of marshalling their members yeah. to oppose this, for example. I saw a statement from the Catholic Church saying, you know, they put it out to their members. Although I've also seen a lot of surveys that show a lot of Catholics are actually in support of assisted dying. Maybe not the super active ones, but... Well, the church there's tends def- to lay to their members by, well, decades to centuries. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of people interested in this and following it. It's good to see the high response rate. Leger and Canadian Press put out a poll in the last few days on these questions. Uh, they found 86% of people agree with medical assistance in dying for people with serious degenerative incurable diseases. Uh, 74% supported even if death is not, quote, fast approaching. 74% also support advanced requests and effectively the same number for people with Alzheimer's. The one thing that's a little more controversial is should we have a longer than 10-day reflection period? 49% are kind of supportive are supportive of that. 34% aren't. 17% just didn't know what to answer. The question seemed phrased kind of poorly when I read it. What was really interesting in this survey is preference of political party, whether you voted for conservatives, liberals, NDP, or green, wasn't really a predictor of being more or less supportive on any, of any of these questions. I think intuitively I would have guessed conservatives would be a bit more reluctant and greens and NDP a bit more supportive. And you see that a little bit here and there, but overall it's actually pretty consistent, which is neat. The other interesting question there is they asked, would you personally request an assisted death for a serious degenerative incurable disease? And 51% said yes, versus 18% said no, and the rest were just unsure. So I think Canadians are actually pretty on board with having this as a right, having the option there. People don't really know if they would personally do it, but I think that's the value of the choice. Only other thing I have to say is the survey closes on Monday at midnight Pacific time, which is actually really nice. You don't often see that in Canada. I guess it's because it's the last time zone. So do fill that out if you have opinions. Uh, We'll put links to the survey, the Humanist and Civil Liberties Association responses. I don't know, should I dig up the Catholic response as a balance? You want to. And then as the regime expands, we'll have to see what other steps are taken by the provinces who end up dealing with the actual rollout. And that's where a number of the other access questions have to come down to because, you know, here in BC and many provinces, religious hospitals still refuse to provide assisted dying or abortion for that matter, or even contraceptives in some cases. And that means at least for assisted dying that people are undergoing excruciating transfers when they're at the end of life in serious pain. And this could even be in residential care facilities. And in rural areas, that can make a big difference. So lots of work to be done. And just because it was a quote-unquote controversial topic, when you see something that says 86% of Canadians are in support, I don't know why we keep calling a thing controversial. Like, frankly, because the other 14% is really loud, or used to be. Moving on to the next segment, much ado about NAFTA. The USMCA, the successor to the North American Free Trade Agreement, is rolling along as in the US it has been passed by both houses, both the House of Representatives and the Senate, and is going to Trump's desk to be signed. And in Canada, we are set to see a bill to pass it through Parliament tabled on January 29th. After that, it becomes the new law. So we thought we'd take a little bit of time 
and look at what this does that's a little bit different. I don't think we've done too much on that. I think we talked a bit about it when the deal was first signed in terms of the negotiations. And for background, this was basically Trump's I don't really like NAFTA. I've promised as the best deal maker, I'll get a much better deal for us and ended up basically being a series of minor tweaks to the existing arrangements. It reminds me of what Andrew Scheer was saying through the election, which is that this is the worst trade deal or terrible negotiation from Trudeau. I could get something so much better. I imagine if the conservatives came through, they would tweak two things and it would be largely the same because this is a bulky, complicated piece of paper document that, you know, tweaking things affects a lot of people who get very angry. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why usually these agreements get negotiated behind closed doors, as the opponents usually like to frame it as, because there are just so many competing interests. You can't really do it out in the open without getting bawled down in the public about every little detail and every interest group's sudden outrage at it. So it's not really unusual for it, and uh, opponents always try and make a big deal out of it, but it's really much to do about nothing. Well, the Conservatives are planning to not necessarily slow the passage of the bill down in Parliament, but they're going to, quote, definitely give it the proper due diligence to shine a light on some of the unique aspects. Yeah, and the Bloc and the NDP have made similar noises, so I expect we'll have a longer committee period than... It would have been if the Liberals had just won a majority. But overall, I expect the Conservatives will probably support it. The NDP probably won't. And who knows about the block? Maybe the dairy concessions are a bridge too far for them. Well, let's get into some of the specifics of the change. We'll link a podcast from Forbes that's called like Tax Time that does a bit on what the bill is, how these things work, how these trade agreements work. And it's tax notes talk. Tax notes talks. Which, yeah, not tax times not to be confused with our podcast last week with Kevin Milligan. That's what I got confused with. So listen to that as well. But there's a few other things they missed. The first, the thing they talk about in that podcast a lot, though, is the rule of origin provisions around automobile manufacturing. So, yeah, this is basically a rule that says cars can be sold in. North America, so the three countries in the agreement, as long as 75%, it was 62.5, because that half percent is really critical, uh, before. So now, you know, if you have 74% that is made in, in North America and, you know, that extra 26% is not from North America, there'd be a tariff on it. So the goal here is to increase jobs, in North, in North America for car manufacturers. It's simply that. I mean, it means you have to make a few more parts here that might have been made in Germany or Japan or China. Yeah, and that's probably going to increase the cost of the cars a little bit because ultimately tar- the cost of tariffs are borne by the consumer. I mean, let's increase the cost of cars because there's too many of them anyway. The other thing affecting automobile manufacturing is a requirement that 30% of the car must be made by people making $16 an hour. And that is an effort, especially by Americans, to cancel the downloading of labor onto cheaper Mexican factories. It gets a little bit more... It's the idea of having almost a minimum wage for 
auto manufacturers. Yeah, and do you see that in a lot of uh, trade deals these days? Like what the TPP became, because we always have to rebrand everything now, had some provisions similar to that as well for countries like Vietnam that were signatories. I think these can be, they do drive up costs, but they can also be reasonable in that the alternative is you drive down wages in some ways. Or or substitute for automation. And that's something that is probably in the podcast you talked about as well, but that output is as high as it's ever been more or less in, well, not just auto manufacturing, but manufacturing in general in uh, America. And labor and the amount of people working in the sector is not nearly as high as it used to be. And that's because there's been a lot of shift to automation. So the effect on that might be more substitution of automation for labor rather than necessarily increasing wages as much. If only we had a, what was it, the Greens robot tax? That was just a bad idea. Let's not talk about that one. The the nuance of this $16 an hour thing that's brought up in the podcast is that it's actually an average wage among the employers in a certain factory rather than a floor. So you could actually still have a lot of people working at much less than that as long as you have a couple who are So the plant well-paid. managers are trying to... <laughs> so in that case, it's just a weird rule. Uh, one rule that's good, though, is the de minimis level, as in the amount of goods you can bring back from the states into Canada is going to rise to $150. It was stupidly low, but it was like, was it 20 bucks or something? It was... It depended on how long you were there. Yeah, there was a... Like, but the, the low least amount was really low. Yeah. Like if you had just gone for a few hours, you might not have even been able to bring anything. So, yes, let's have more duty-free shopping because... Uh, fine. Especially at that level, it doesn't really harm anything, I can imagine. We'll find out. I'm not an economist. One thing that does bug me, though, is that copyright in Canada is going to be extended. The new rule will be that copyright exists and continues for materials to the end of the death of the artist plus 70 years. Except for sound recording, so this podcast will still be our intellectual property, until 75 years after we, or I guess now, Leg and Boot Media dies. Copyright law really annoys me because I would like to use a lot more copyright material without complications. And using sound for podcasts or music for podcasts is actually very complicated in Canada because there's like three copyright holders. There's like who wrote the song, who performed the song, and whose like album it's on. And so it's pain and no one's really made it easy. Yeah, there's a bunch of intellectual property require or changes that are more move Canada more in line with the US, which yeah, not the greatest on that. Also, there's gonna be no more need for foreign offices in USMCA countries, so you'll no longer have the McDonald's Canada subdivision of McDonald's. This seems reasonable. I mean, yeah. it'll reduce the number of white collar jobs possibly, but they would be but they're bullshit jobs because they're just duplicating what you're yeah. Counterparts are doing so. It might harm marketing in that all the offices will probably get located in one country and then like we'll have a little less unique branding in Canada, but corporate nationalism is weird anyway. One of the most notable things though for Canada especially is the changes to investor state uh, dispute settlements. So there's three kinds of disputes that these trade agreements deal with. Country to country, that's staying the same. Uh, the chapter 19 stuff around anti-dumping and countervailing duties. This is something Trump really hated, but it's staying the same. 
But the thing that we're getting rid of, at least from Canada's point of view, is the investor state. And this is the Chapter 11. And this is where companies can sue the Canadian government for changing the laws or putting in regulations that might harm their free trade well, it, agreements. To, to clarify a bit, it's basically making rules and laws that provide an advantage to Canadian firms over American or Mexican firms. Uh, so I think one of the classic examples was there was a gasoline additive that Canadian law prohibited from being transported across uh, provincial borders, which includes the borders from the states, but you could manufacture and distribute it within the province. So that got challenged because if you had a factory in Canada using it and sold it within the province, that would be that would have been legal, but you couldn't have brought it in from the states. So it's stuff like that that's in theory what these mechanisms are there to challenge is unfair laws. And the reason this me- mechanism is often used rather than a simple court case is uh, if there's concerns that all the parties' courts aren't as independent or won't necessarily favor their their country. I think there was some initial hope when this was brought in or thought that it would be companies who are worried about Mexico imposing difficulties to do business but it turns out most of the cases have actually been against Canada and a lot of them are still in court like I think there's been like 40 and only you know less than half of them have settled so we've won eight of them lost nine of them it's not a terrible record but it's not great it's good for baseball so anyway that will be gone it's not clear what will happen to those outstanding cases but yeah so yeah this is strapped and We'll have to see the exact outcome of that, but uh, might make life a little easier for Canada or alternatively, we'll just be settling these in Canadian courts instead. And then the last few things that come up, there's some requirements that currency be transparent. This doesn't actually change anything for any yeah, of both, the three countries because we're all following. Yeah, the, we're basically using floating exchange rates and no real attempts at manipulating currency. It might set a precedent that future trade agreements that the U.S. or any of these countries enter into with less financially transparent countries do, that this will then be in those. So that might be where that is. There's the let the other countries know if you get in a free trade agreement with China law or provision that I think Trump was big on. Yeah, well, it's weird because this is clearly a we're going to target China thing. But one of Trump's first actions when he took office was withdraw the U.S. from a big trade deal that was explicitly targeted at China, the TPP, which was a, we're going to get all the countries around China to be part of our trading bloc so they don't trade as much with China instead and become, you know, tighter to the American sphere of influence. And then Trump decided not to do that, which was geopolitically dumb. But, you know, nobody ever said Trump was a brilliant tactician or strategist and finally there's a sunset clause that means the whole thing will be reviewed every six years and will expire in 16 but can be renewed in 16 years which creates some uncertainty for business but you know gives politicians the chance to say we'll look at this again and honestly something will need to probably be updated 
I mean, you may want some tweaks, but a bunch of the potential people who will be in office in the U.S. in maybe eight years or six years, I guess, from now, aren't necessarily the most trade-friendly, which is somewhat concerning from Canada's perspective. But that's the USMCA in a nutshell. It claims to grow the GDP by under half a percent, but as they talk about in tax notes, that may be an inflated number. It sounds a little hard to get the S- to nail down the estimates on this, and because these are such minor tweets, pretty much all the substantial gains happened in the 90s and the 2000s. Like We've basically gotten everything we're going to get out of this, and now it's just tweaking the rules to try and the edge out a tiny marginal gain. Oh, I don't think we also mentioned that we've upped our dairy quota on this as well. Yeah, essentially the U.S. can now buy a little bit more dairy. No, we, we can now buy a little bit more dairy. It's gone from like 3.2 billion to, th- I think it was three points. I don't have the number in front of me, but a, a small increase in the first amount of American cheese that can come in here duty free year. Good. I think supply management will survive this. Oh, it's, terrible it does. It's, it does survive this, but whether or not, you know, the Quebec dairy farmers are going to make so much of a fuss, the block or even the conservatives trying to throw a wrench in this. It's up in the air. Well, speaking of the conservatives, let's jump into our now apparently weekly segment of the conservative leadership roundup as the news this week came fast and furious. Uh, so suppose first off, a whole bunch of the people who we thought were going to be running aren't. John Charade dropped out earlier this week. I think he was the first major person to announce that he wasn't actually going to run. Stephen Harper works very fast <laughs> and is very effective, apparently. Scared him right off. I mean, the, the path to victory for John Charay was always razor thin. You probably just saw the writing on the wall. Yeah. Better to enjoy his retirement and complain about anti-corruption units targeting him personally. Yeah. More interestingly, Rana Ambrose finally came to a decision to not run. That was a little bit surprising, but not the most She, her, she kept her name out there for long enough. That, that I think a lot of people, you know, came with the impression that she was very seriously considering it. And she did a good job as an interim leader and, you know, was ready to moderate the party where it needed to be moderated. And eh, she probably lost to the conservatives that she's not going to be in there. I think the biggest shocker of the week was this afternoon that Pierre Polyev announced he just doesn't, his heart's not in it, to use his words, and he's not going to run for leader. So he has a one-year-old kid at home and like a new family. It's... Uh, it, it's entirely reasonable to not want to take on all the rather unpleasantness that comes with being a leader, both the intense scrutiny and the much longer hours away from the family. Well, and it's an interesting decision because he pretty much started putting together a campaign team, and it was a yeah, it was big long, one. Yeah, it's putting big named one. Yeah, bringing some like serious uh, talent from the conservative benches on there and lining up a bunch of endorsements. So that leaves kind of the major names being Peter McKay and Marilyn Gladue, the current MPs in the race. And Aaron O'Toole. And Aaron O'Toole, who's not officially declared yet. Oh, yeah, he hasn't officially. But like everyone knows he's running. And, you know, I'd place him above Marilyn Gladue as the, in yeah. terms of seriousness of a candidate. So assuming this isn't just entirely the Peter McKay coronation now, let's talk about 
and we can ask whether that's true in a minute. Let's talk about the also-rans who jumped into the race this week. Rick Peterson is back. So people may or may not remember, probably will not probably remember. Probably not. <laughs> uh, so he was the, I think, uh, he was a businessman from North Vancouver who since relocated to Edmonton, ran a pretty bland, generic conservative campaign for leader last time, came in something like 12th, wasn't a particularly impressive showing. And with a few big names in the race, I'm kind of confused on why he's doing it again. He managed to beat Andrew Saxton and Deepak O'Brien, uh, but came in just behind Kevin O'Leary, who had quit the leadership race by that point. Yeah, it's unclear what he hopes to accomplish in this. Another name that I had to look up was Derek Sloan, who's the Conservative MP for Hastings, Lennox, and Addington. This is first term, right? I Probably. The fact that we're looking this up right now is, is an indication that he is, doesn't have a huge amount of name recognition and once again, it's kind of a little confused on why he's jumping in the race. Uh, he's the first Seventh-day Adventist ever elected to the Canadian Parliament. Okay. And he was elected in 2019. Okay, yeah. So first he was born in 83 or 84 and is 35 or 36, according to Wikipedia. So they really nailed that down. Another social conservative who is in the race and has been getting a lot of coverage this past week is Richard DeCary. So admittedly, I had not even heard he was running until that whole thing blew up yesterday. Uh, so he did an interview on uh, CTV where he says that LGBTQ is a, quote, liberal term and that being gay is a choice. He also said something about abortion being awful or shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. He's it, just trying to tick all the boxes. Yeah. Pretty much everyone on the conservative side who isn't firmly aligned with the social conservative wing of the party came out and denounced it pretty quick. Peter McKay, Pierre Polyevre, and Michelle Rempel were the ones I saw, but I believe a bunch others had as well. He's never been elected. He was a strategic, he's a strategic communication consultant and was deputy chief of staff to Harper when Harper was opposition leader. And he was later chief of staff and senior advisor to Jean Charest, ironically. So yeah, he's kind of tanked his... Well, no, what I think he's trying to do is lock down the social conservative coalition or part of the coalition because those people are motivated and they show up. So that it kind of gives you like a 30% right off the bat. Well, he'll be competing with Derek Sloan, I guess, and... Maybe Clayton Knutson, if he's allowed to run, the freedom conservative guy we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so I think there's also, I saw Bobby Singh is listed on the Wikipedia article. I don't know who he is. There's also Leslie Lewis. There's Aaron Seal, the millennial conservative. My favorite, my pick so far. It's really turning into another, a repeat of the 2017 election. Well, you have a bunch of people who've said they're interested, but as we talked about, uh, I think two weeks ago now, the entry fees and the requirements to get uh, signatures are so much higher. Like most of these people aren't going to make it through the those cutoffs. They are staggered, so I think you only need something like five hundred signatures and twenty five thousand. I, I could be wrong that number, but it's a much smaller portion of it to get through the first hurdle, and then there's two more. And it's that final one that you have to cross that 3,000 signature and 300 grand mark to finally have your name appear on the ballot. But 
uh, yeah, I expect a lot, a lot of these will be weeded out uh, throughout that. What's interesting to me is if it, this does come down to Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, who, who I think arguably are the two largest names still in the race, is that they both kind of take up the same lane, and it's going to, which is the more... Red Tory-ish. Red Tory, like, yeah, older PC side of things, the, the more moderate uh, part of the... Not particularly socially conservative uh, side of things, and... How If it's those two, how do they differentiate themselves? That'll be, I guess, what we're watching. I guess we could also see people like Michelle Rempel jump into the race. And I mean, she may be. I, I names, think there's but... a decent chance at one point she runs for leader. Yeah. Not. I don't think it's probably going to be this time, but it wouldn't surprise me if she has leadership ambitions. Well, we're running long, so let's jump into quick takes and do the quickest of takes. First up, I don't have anything to say about this story, but I, th- I think we'll flag it because it's been covered so much, is the Meng Wanzhou hearing has been happening all week at the BC Supreme Court, and neither of us have been sitting in court or I imagine even really following the minutiae of an extradition hearing. But the thing that's gotten a lot of coverage is this, like, what's literally titled as the strange tale of paid protesters supporting Meng Wanzhou at her trial, where the media is partially, and I hate to credit him, after Bob Mackin kind of went up and asked these protesters, you know, who are, who's paying you? And then another journalist managed to dig up Well, of, one of course who, Bob Mackin thinks everybody's being paid, but well, I guess, in this case, there, there might have actually been something Yeah, to there it, was so. one who admitted to a, accepting a extra acting position for 150 bucks, and then when this person realized it was a fake protest went, I'm just going to quit or walk away from this. This doesn't seem legit. And the question is, is this just something to give Chinese state propaganda, like a a good background? So I I did see somewhere that it was reported that a CCTV, the, I think, a a, a Chinese television channel, was there and filming with the protesters in the background. So that is quite possible. So paid protesters do exist. They're just paid by Chinese communists, not environmental NGOs, and George Soros. Next, the Office of the Correctional Investigator has a report out this week on the, what he calls basically a shocking number of Indigenous people in federal custody, which is at 30%. And there's a chart in this short report that shows that since 2001, that percentage has grown from 18%, and particularly in the last 10 years, it's grown from about like 19 or 20 to 30. And he says we're on track to hit a third of people in federal prisons being Indigenous. And among the female population in prisons, Indigenous women account for 42% of that population. So it looks like we're getting more racist from this angle in the era of you know reconciliation and multiple inquiries telling our governments to fix these problems. And it's not just a like the prison population is going down disproportionately it's there are more indigenous people in jail and fewer non-indigenous people in jail so it's bad and there are a lot of challenges there so that doesn't seem good no i don't really have much more to add to that another thing a lot of new democrat members think is not good at least among the like more radical base is that the party is going to delay its national convention and leadership review because it doesn't have the money to do it yeah that's not great uh so the NDP's about $7 million in the hole, I believe, after having to 
mortgage their headquarters building in Ottawa and then racked up a bunch of debt during the campaign. And not great. They have a bit of fundraising to do to kind of balance things out. And conventions expect to cost somewhere between, I think, 400000 to a $1 million. They can and typically do, especially when you do them in the big showy, bring a bunch of big speakers and try and get a bunch of headlines. But you could do them as a formality like it's required in the party Every, constitution. Everybody crowds into a conference room in the Leighton building and... Yeah. <laughs> you know, double the ticket fees, although the NDP doesn't like to do that. The, the party constitution of each party does require leadership reviews under different circumstances and conventions. Skipping it is bad, and I'm not clear what the workaround is for members who feel affronted by this. I'm sure they can sue. Maybe that'll happen. So watch for disgruntled leftist NDP members to sue their party. Isn't that a little redundant? Disgruntled leftist NDP members? Just figured like disgruntledness yeah. is their natural state. So. Yeah, that's about accurate. But speaking of courts, the Supreme Court of Canada has decided not to hear the plastic bag ban case out of the city of Victoria. So Victoria passed a ban on plastic bags it got appeal or challenged at the BC Supreme Court, where I think the city won, but then the BC Court of Appeal sided with the... The plaintiffs, the challengers. The, plaintiffs, the challengers. Who made the argument that the city government doesn't actually have the power to do this. And it was specifically because the court viewed this as an attempt to pass environmental regulations. And I think that related to how councillors probably argued it. And the environment is not municipal power, it's a provincial and federal power. And so the ban got struck down, and now the Supreme Court will not bother with it. And Victoria, you can buy plastic bags once more, I guess. And it's typical the Supreme Court didn't give any reasons for this, but uh, most of those cases that get appealed to them don't get heard, so it's not really something you can read too much into. The stupidest story this week prize goes to donuts. And the obsession over, the quote-unquote obsession over whether Trudeau should have bought from Tim Hortons versus the hipster O-Donuts or whatever it was. Some some local shop. place in Winnipeg. Yeah. Chris Selly has a piece in National Post that basically hits half of what I want to say, which is that, you know, five people complaining on Twitter does not make a scandal. That's true. The other half I want to say is like, we're in, we went through this in the 2016 U.S. election and we've kind of kept talking about it in the background since. Social media is both actively and passively making debate worse, whether it's by like bots trying to inflame passions or by just like the way it works that we get inflamed about something and something looks more controversial than it is. So I'm not saying the Russians are like pumping up a donut scandal in Canada. You don't think but, Putin has options on the uh, Tim Horton stock? I mean, it doesn't even matter, right? It's just about inflaming cultural issues. And this seems like a perfect nonsensical cultural issue to inflame, whether it's bots or just people thinking something's more controversial. I think you were right with your, like, multiple Twitter breaks you've already taken. Like, Maybe time for another one. These are just bad for our debate. Let's not talk about donuts. We don't, neither of us care. People, media, headline writers, just stop talking maybe about donuts. Maybe just a slow news day, maybe. We've had... An over an hour and 10 minutes of stuff to talk about. I don't know what their excuse is. Like, what is it, Tuesday morning, maybe? Maybe. Not much was happening. Anyway. Yeah, definitely the dumbest story of the week. Don't get outraged about stuff on the internet. 
that just goes for everyone. And that has been Politos. Find links to everything we talked about at politos.ca. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com slash politos. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Lomia by Serge Plotkoff. Playtoast is the production of Leg and Boot Media, and editing services are provided by Cortado Productions. Thanks for listening.